I want to say happy Mother's Day to all of our moms as well. Moms, you look great today. Uh, Dads, you could probably try a little bit harder, but moms, uh, awesome, awesome. I hope you've taken advantage of the photo booth out in the lobby. Uh, And I want to say this, that's for everybody, okay? So if you have a mom, you were born of a woman, you can go to the photo booth today and uh, and you can be a part of that. We're going to post those pictures on our Facebook page and you can download the high-res versions there. But I want to see all your smiling faces on there, okay? We've got some uh, important stuff to talk about today, and I am so excited to teach this message. But before I do it, I do want to address the fact uh, that my hand is, is wrapped up and I am doing the reverse Pledge of Allegiance today. Uh, so two weeks ago on Thursday, I was cutting a board in my garage, and the board kicked, and my hand went into my table saw. And uh, I lost... Both of my fingernails, I broke both of my fingers, and it really did a job on the flesh as well. So I have spent the better part of the last two weeks on a doctor-prescribed Percocet trip to La La Land, where uh, unicorns are real, and I can't make a complete sentence, uh, but I'm thankful to say that is over. Um, Ibuprofen is taking care of me now. I do want to ask this, though. Uh, Things are moving along well. The doctor says as good as can be expected, except for on my middle finger. And uh, some tissue has turned black uh, and has died. And so one of two things is happening there. Either there's new tissue being formed underneath, or it's just dead. Uh, If there's new tissue, the black falls off like a scab, and I just move forward as normal. If it's dead, they are going to amputate some of my finger. And so, uh, obviously, I'm praying that new stuff is growing, and I would invite you to pray that as well. But I want you to know that with that prayer uh, is always a prayer for thankfulness, that the Lord preserved my hand. It could have been so much worse. Guys have lost entire limbs on power equipment, and I am so thankful to the Lord that uh, he was so gracious to me in this. So... I do not want this to be a distraction for you today. I am fine, okay? I do covet your prayers, but I am fine. And we've got some important stuff to talk about today because we are in week three of a series titled Why I'm Not a Christian. And I want to say if you are new to Genesis today or you haven't been here for a while, I strongly urge you to go to our podcast and listen to weeks one and two of this series. Paul Mumaw and Kevin Russell taught those messages And I just got to tell you, I think those are two of the best messages that have ever been preached from this stage. They were so powerful. Those guys did such a fantastic job, and they really raised the bar for Steve and I these next couple of weeks. But we are basing this series off of some statements made in a lecture by British philosopher Bertrand Russell in 1927. We have a picture of Bertrand. Fun fact, uh, Bertrand is Kevin Russell's great-great-uncle. And uh, you can definitely see the resemblance, mostly in the pipe. Uh, I've got to keep telling Kevin to quit lighting that thing in the office. I'm kidding. Bertrand's not his uncle. The pipe thing's real, though. Um, His lecture, Bertrand's lecture was titled, Why I'm Not a Christian. And in that lecture, he laid out the reasons for his doubt in God and in Christianity and in Jesus Christ. And the reality is, The issues that he raised in that lecture are things that people still deal with today. We still struggle with those same questions, some of us, some of those same doubts. And so our goal in this series has been to address the issues that he raised in a way that would would address them that would be helpful for you if you have some of those same doubts and questions, but also to better equip those of you who are believers 
for the conversation when, when this topic comes up, and, and what do I say, and how do I address that? And so the question we're going to address this morning is this. How can there be only one way to God? I mean, how, how can you say that Jesus Christ is the only way to God? That's what the Bible teaches, but it's so countercultural. And to some, it's even offensive that we would say that. Because with so many different religions and so many different people groups and different pathways and different religious experiences, how can Christians claim the one exclusive way to God through Jesus Christ? And so I'm going to do my best in the next 30 minutes uh, to lay out a defense and to show you why we believe Jesus is the only way. But I have listed several resources for you on your notes page if you want to go even deeper. And I hope that you will. Because scripture tells us, makes it very clear that we are to always be ready to give a reason for the hope that is inside of us. And so I think these resources will help you clarify the reasons for that hope. So check those out. But one of the resources that's listed there on your notes page is a book that's titled When Skeptics Ask by Norman Geisler. And in it, he says this. Geisler says, the truth of Christianity depends entirely on the truth and the truthfulness of Jesus Christ. So who was Jesus, and what can we know about him? What claims did he make about himself, and what proof did he offer to validate those claims? That's what I want to look at today, because here's what Bertrand Russell said in his lecture when it came to the topic of Jesus. Russell said, historically, it is quite doubtful whether Christ ever existed at all, and if he did, we know nothing about him. That's what Bertrand Russell suggested in his, his lecture. So let's start with the first part of that statement, that it's doubtful whether Christ ever existed at all. When I read that, I thought back to what Kevin said a couple of weeks ago uh, when he pointed out that there are no less than 39 sources outside of the biblical accounts that record this man, this historical figure, Jesus Christ, for us. Not just one or two sources, but 39 other sources that refer to Jesus of Nazareth. And in his book, The Historical Jesus, which is also noted on your sermon notes page, uh, Gary Habermas notes several of these extra biblical sources. Now here's a little side note for you. If you wanna read some of what Habermas has written on this topic without buying the book, you can go to garyhabermas.org, uh, I'm sorry, .com, where he has offered several chapters from his book for free. You can just go on there and read them. One of the chapters that he offers is on these extra biblical sources, uh, and it is some fascinating stuff. But one of those sources that he points to is that of Cornelius Tacitus, who lived between 55 and 120 AD. We've got a picture of Tacitus here. This is him one morning when he woke up all tied up in the bed sheets, and uh, man, <laughs> I tell you, that's frustrating, isn't it? But, uh, but anyway, Tacitus was a Roman senator and a historian, and he has been called the greatest historian of ancient Rome. And Habermas notes that he is generally acknowledged among scholars for his moral integrity and essential goodness. Now, I want you to see what Tacitus recorded concerning the great fire of Rome uh, that happened in AD 64 during the reign of Emperor Nero. Tacitus writes this. You can read along. Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations, called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate, 
uh, Pilatus, and a, a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, again broke out, not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome. Now, this was recorded by Tacitus in his work titled The Annals. Mickey, will you leave that up for just a second? The Annals were written in 115 AD, and Habermas points out that we can learn at least seven things about the historical Jesus from this account. I want you to kind of read along as I point these out. The first is this. Christians were named for their founder, Christus, which is from the Latin for Christ. Second, Christ was put to death. That's the extreme penalty that he mentions here. We know that Christ was crucified by order of Pontius Pilate. He records that. Third, this, or, this occurred during the reign of Emperor Tiberius. Now, Tiberius reigned between 14 and 37 AD. We know that Jesus was around 33 years old when he was crucified, so he falls into that reign of Emperor Tiberius. Fourth, his death ended the quote-unquote superstition for a short time. That superstition certainly being that Jesus was the Son of God. Fifth, the superstition broke out again after his death. Sixth, the initial resurgence of the superstition was in Judea, where the teaching had its origin. And seventh, ultimately, Jesus' followers carried the story of Christus all the way to Rome. Now, for those of you who know the biblical accounts of Jesus' life and death and the early beginnings of the church, does this line up? Does it? Yes, absolutely it lines up, doesn't it? Keep in mind, this is just one of at least 39 extra biblical sources that point to the reality of the historical Jesus. Kevin noted that a man named Dr. Edwin Yamauchi, he's a former history professor at Miami University, uh, he's quoted in Lee Strobel's book, The Case for Christ. And by the way, if you haven't read that book, uh, get it and read it. It's a great one. And if you don't like to read, now you can go see the movie, so that's nice. But... (laughs) Yamauchi has studied the extra-biblical sources extensively, and he concludes this. The fact is, we have better historical documentation for Jesus than for the founder of any other ancient religion. So to Bertrand Russell's statement, is it historically doubtful that Jesus ever existed? Obviously not. We've just looked at one source, and we can see that it is not historically doubtful. In fact, there's quite a lot we can know about him before we ever get to our best source, which is the Word of God, the biblical text. So we begin today with this understanding, that Jesus was a real man who lived in the first century AD and was ultimately killed by the Roman government. But showing that Jesus existed is still a far distance away from showing that he is the one exclusive way to God. And so to do that, uh, I want to turn to the biblical sources. You know, why why do Christians believe that statement anyway? Uh, I'm not going to spend any time this morning explaining why the biblical sources are accurate and trustworthy. Kevin did a great job of that a couple of weeks ago. Again, listen to that message on the podcast if you missed it. But we're going to start where Kevin left us with an understanding that the Bible is historically accurate, it's trustworthy, and it's true. So what can we learn from the gospel account specifically about the claims that Jesus made about himself? Well, I want to highlight five of his claims, and here they are. First, in John 8, 58, Jesus said, "'Very truly I tell you, before Abraham was, I am.'" And those listening would have immediately caught this reference to Exodus 3.14, where God said, I am who I am. And so Jesus, in this response, he's claiming to be God. 
Second, Jesus claimed to be the son of God and to have equality with God. We read in in John 5.18 that Jesus was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Third, Jesus claimed to be the Messiah. And we read in Mark chapter 14 that the high priest asked him, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? And Jesus responded here again with the words, I am. Fourth, we see in Matthew 28 that Jesus claimed equal authority with God when he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And finally, the fifth truth claim. And if you don't write anything else down today, I want you to write this one. He claimed to be the only way to God. John 14, 6 says this, that Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Nikki, do we, yeah, let's put that verse up there. I want you to notice in this statement that Jesus does not say, I am a way. He does not say, I am a truth. He does not say, I am one of the ways to the Father. No, Jesus says, I am the truth. I am the way. I am the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. I am the only way to God. That's what Jesus claimed. So this Jesus, who we saw was a real person in history, made claims to be more than just a man. But that's what some people say about Jesus, isn't it? They say, they say sure, okay, he existed, he was a man, and, and maybe even he was a good teacher, or he was a great moral person. Maybe even Jesus was a prophet, but I want you to recognize that Jesus' claims about himself go so much further. He claimed to be God to be the son of God, to be the only way to God. And many of you will recognize the name C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis wrote a book, I I think it's one of his greatest works, titled Mere Christianity. It actually wasn't a book when it was written. Uh, Lewis had been invited to speak on a radio talk show. And so they recorded what he said on that show, and then they put it into book form, which really made uh, his information all the more readable for guys like me who aren't really that smart. But I want to tell you this. If you haven't read Mere Christianity before, uh, I want you to get on Amazon right now and order it. It is so good. would make a great last-minute Mother's Day gift. Get on there, get it, and uh, read it with mom. It's a must-read. But I want you to know what C.S. Lewis says in Mere Christianity about calling Jesus just a good man or saying that he was just a good teacher. You can read along with me. Here's what he says. Lewis says, I am trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. That is that I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claims to be God. And that is the one thing we must not say. Listen, a man who is merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now, this is often referred to as Lewis's liar, lunatic, or Lord passage. Jesus was either willfully lying or he was out of his mind. He was a lunatic or he was telling the truth and he really was the son of God. He is the Lord, but he cannot be just a good moral teacher. 
You, you can't say the kinds of things that Jesus said and be a good moral teacher. Liar, lunatic, or Lord. Those are the options. But how can we know which one it is? What evidence did Jesus give to back up the claims that he made? Well, I think four things point to the truthfulness of Jesus' claims. These are in your notes if you want to write them down. Proof number one is this. It's his fulfillment of prophecy. And Kevin mentioned again in his message that over 300 prophecies were fulfilled in Christ. I want to give you just a few of those prophecies to show you how significant this is. I'll move through them quickly. But the Old Testament said that the Messiah would do these things. He would be born of a woman, born of a virgin, of the tribe of Judah, of the house of David, born in Bethlehem. He would perform miracles. He would cleanse the temple. He would be silent before his accusers. He would be rejected by the Jews, crucified between thieves, suffer pierced hands and feet. He would pray for his persecutors. His side would be pierced. He would be buried in a rich man's tomb. Lots would be cast for his garment, and he would rise from the dead. Now, these are just 16 of the over 300 prophecies made of the coming Messiah. And some of these were given over 400 years before Jesus was born. And every one of these prophecies and all of the others were fulfilled in Jesus and recorded in the New Testament by eyewitnesses who saw it. Now, mathematicians have calculated the probability of just 16 predictions being fulfilled in one man. And that probability is 1 in 10 to the 45th power. Now, that's a 10 with 45 zeros behind it. It looks like this. I know that Kevin showed you a number. His was smaller than mine. I just want to note that. My number is bigger than Kevin's. Uh, but that's for just 16 prophecies being fulfilled in one man. Now, listen, if your horse has a 1 in 10 to the 45th power chance of winning the Kentucky Derby, you better not put money on that horse. A Shetland pony has better chances than that. And that's just one, you know, that's just one man, 16 prophecies in one man. But the reality is Jesus fulfilled over 300 prophecies. That's the number on this screen plus 800 more zeros. That's the possibility of over 300 prophecies being fulfilled in one man by chance. So here's the point. It's not reasonable to believe that these prophecies were accidentally fulfilled in Christ. It's not a coincidence. Jesus of Nazareth was the one whom the Old Testament prophets spoke of. His fulfillment of all of the prophecies shows that to be true. Okay, so the first proof, uh, his fulfillment of prophecies. Second proof is this, his sinless life. His sinless life. In 1 John chapter 1, we read that God is light. In him is no darkness at all. It's referring to the fact that, that God is sinless. He is without sin. It is impossible for him to sin. And so if Jesus claimed to be God, he also would have had to have lived a life without sin, a perfect sinless life. Did you know that not a single sinful act was ever shown to be true about Jesus? He was often falsely accused, but none of those accusations ever stuck. At Jesus' trial, I want you to consider this. At Jesus' trial, Pilate declared, I find no guilt in this man. At the foot of the cross, the Roman soldier said, Surely this man was innocent. And on the cross, the thief next to Jesus proclaimed, this man has done nothing wrong. And these assessments are testimonies to the perfect, sinless life of Jesus. Each of these men came to the exact same conclusion. 
But what about those who are closest to Jesus? Think about his disciples. These men spent three years with Jesus, watching him day in and day out. They traveled all over with him, always having their eyes on Jesus, learning from him, watching him, studying him. What did they have to say about his life? Well, Peter called Christ a lamb without defect in 1 Peter 1.9. He said he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth, 1 Peter 2.22. John called him righteous in 1 John 2.1, and he said that in him was no sin, 1 John 3.5. Paul said that Jesus knew no sin, 2 Corinthians 5.21. And the writer of Hebrews tells us that he was tempted in every way, yet without sin. That's Hebrews 4.15. Listen, every person who examined the life of Jesus of Nazareth came to the same conclusion. He was sinless. And understand, that means he never lied. And so that means that that if he never lied, we can trust him when he says that he is God, that he is the son of God, and that he is the only way to God. We cannot believe that Jesus was sinless and yet deny the claims that he made. If he was sinless, then his claims have to be true. So we have the proof of the fulfillment of prophecy. We have the proof of his sinless life. And the third proof is this. It's Jesus's miracles. Jesus's miracles. One of the prophecies of the coming Messiah is found in Isaiah 35, verses five through six. And it says this. It says, then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer and the mute tongue will shout for joy. These were just some of the miraculous signs that would identify the coming Messiah. So people were watching for these signs, knowing that the Messiah would perform them. And as we read the New Testament accounts, what we find is that Jesus is turning water into wine. He's multiplying food. He commanded the wind and the waves. He walked on water. He made blind men see. He made lame people walk. He healed people of all kinds of sicknesses and diseases. He even brought dead people back to life. And all of these miracles were uh, recorded by eyewitnesses who were there and saw it firsthand. In one instance, in Mark chapter 2, Jesus told a man who had been paralyzed from birth, he said, your sins have been forgiven. And Mark tells us that some teachers of the law were sitting by and they were thinking to themselves, man, this guy is is blaspheming God. Who can forgive sins except for God? And Mark records that immediately Jesus knew that this is what they were thinking. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven or to say, get up and take your mat and walk. But I want you to know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And so he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. And so he got up, took his mat and walked out in full view of them all. Listen, Isaiah said, the lame will leap like a deer. And Jesus said, get up, take your mat and go home. And I suspect that he did some leaping along the way, trying out his new legs, trying out something he had never done before. He was walking and leaping and praising God for the first time. Jesus proved by his miracles that he was who he said he was. And that brings us to the final proof. And this is the greatest of them all. And it's the proof of Jesus's resurrection, his resurrection. Tim Keller, in his book, The Reason for God, says this about the resurrection. He says, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like Jesus' teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. Now, here's what I want to do. I want to look at 1 Corinthians 
chapter 15, verses 3 through 8. And I want you to notice what Paul recorded for his first century readers there. I want you to put yourself in their shoes as we read this passage together. He says this. He says, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and then that he appeared to Cephas, which is another name for Peter, and then to the twelve, And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me as to one abnormally born. Now think about this. From the perspective of those first century readers, doesn't it seem as though Paul is inviting them to investigate this? Okay, he says, says, here's what happened. Jesus died. He was buried and he rose from the dead. And you don't have to believe me. You can go ask Peter. Or if you don't trust Peter, ask any of the 12. 12's not enough. He appeared to 500 at the same time. And most of them are still alive. Go ask any of them. Ask Jesus' brother James. You know he had doubts. He had questions about Jesus, if he was really the son of God. Go ask him. Go ask him what happened. He'll tell you. Or ask any of the apostles, see what they say. See if all their accounts don't line up. Don't just take my word for it. All these people saw him. They'll tell you he's alive. He has risen from the dead. Listen, if Paul had any doubt in his mind, why would he have offered this information? Why would he have put it out there? If he was worried that, that the accounts would conflict, like if they made this up and they all had to keep their stories straight, there is no way he would have said something like this. He wouldn't have wanted people asking questions. But Paul's not trying to hide anything. He says he is alive. Peter saw him. The 12 saw him. Over 500 people saw him at the same time. James saw him. The apostles saw him. And I saw him. This isn't a joke. This isn't a lie. We didn't make this up. Look into it. You're going to find out he's alive. And to the point that the apostles might have just made this up, if if the resurrection was a lie, why did 10 of the 12 of them go to their death for it? Listen, you might endure some amount of suffering to hide a lie, but death, really? Would you die for a lie? Would you lay your life down for something that you knew was a lie? Okay, let let me illustrate this really quickly, okay? Because I think this is so important. It would be like this. Uh, Our lead pastor, Paul Mumaz, on sabbatical, but while he's away, uh, we're gonna decide, we're gonna change our message, okay? So new, new message at Genesis Church. We're going to tell everybody that Paul died and, uh, and that believing in Paul is the only way to God, okay? You know he's on sabbatical. I know he's on sabbatical. But we're going to go out and we're going to tell people, you've got to believe in your hearts and confess with your mouths that Paul Mumaw is Lord. And uh, God so loved the world that he sent his one and only Paul, okay? That's what we're going to do. We're going to go out and tell them. And so you go out and you do it. You know it's not true, but you start telling people the gospel of Paul and people get upset, okay? I mean, really upset. And, uh, and they figure out a way. They're going to kill you, okay? They've got you. They're going to kill you to shut you up. Now, I know you love Paul. I love him too. And some of us would even die for him. But would you die for a lie about him? Would you lay your life down knowing the gospel of Paul was, was a complete sham? Well, let me ask you this. Could you find two more people to die with you? You say, yeah, I, I, I'd do that. I'd die with that. You're crazy, but, but could you find two more crazy people to die with you? How about 10? 
Could you find 10 people who would lay down their life for the lie of the gospel of Paul? Because that's what it would take to equal the disciples' commitment to their testimony about Jesus. And when you consider the horrible ways in which the disciples died, it just doesn't make sense. Historians believe that Peter was crucified, but that he asked to be crucified upside down because he did not deem himself worthy to die in the same way as Christ. Andrew was scourged, and then they tied him to a cross instead of nailing him so that he would suffer even longer. James was beheaded with a sword. Philip was scourged, and then he was put in prison to languish for a while, and then they crucified him. Philip, I'm sorry, that was Philip. Did I say that? Bartholomew was likely beaten and then crucified, although there's an alternative story, and it's too gruesome for me to share with kids in the room today. Thomas was run through with a spear. Matthew was killed by a sword to the back. Thaddeus and Simon were both crucified. James was 94 years old, 94 years old, when they drug him out of the Jerusalem temple. They stoned him, they beat him, and they finished him off with a blow to the head from a club. And yet not one of these men, not one of them ever withdrew their testimony about Jesus of Nazareth, about his life and his death and his resurrection. Why would they have endured such horrible deaths if this was all a lie? If they hadn't seen Jesus fulfill the prophecies, if they hadn't witnessed his sinless life or his miraculous works, or if Jesus hadn't actually resurrected from the dead, why die for that? But the fact is they did die for it because they saw it with their eyes and they heard it with their ears and they wrote it down so that you and I could read it and see it and know and believe that Jesus was fully God and fully man. He was who he claimed to be and he did what the scripture said he would do. He lived a sinless life and he died a sacrificial death so that you and I could access the father through him. And on the third day, he walked out of the grave, defeating death and giving us hope beyond this life. So to our question today, Why do Christians say there's only one way to God? Well, we didn't actually say that. Jesus did. We simply choose to believe him when he says, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me because the evidence is absolutely overwhelming. And now, just like the disciples, we can only tell of what we've seen and what we've heard that if we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord, if we believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, that we will be saved. And we agree with Peter when he said in Acts chapter 4 that there is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. I want to finish with this. In Matthew 16, Jesus asked his disciples what I believe is the most important question anyone could ever be asked. He asked them, who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? And it's the same question I want to ask you this morning. Who do you say Jesus is? Do you say he was just a good man? You say he's just a a good teacher, maybe, maybe a prophet, one of many ways to God. Who do you say he is? And I hope that you've seen clearly today that he will not settle for any of those titles. He did not leave that open to us. He did not intend to. A.W. Tozer puts it this way. Christ will either be Lord of all or he will not be Lord at all. He will not be one of many ways. And so I ask you this morning, who do you say he is? And I pray that you have seen, as Peter did in Matthew 16, that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of the living God, 
and there is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. If that's true of you, if you are seeing that and saying that today, then today is the day of salvation for you. You can pray to receive him into your heart, surrender your life to him, and know that you are a child of God. That's all it takes. If that's true of you, I'd love to talk to you after the service. Let me pray for you this morning. Father God, I thank you for the truthfulness of your word. I thank you for the sinless life of your son, Jesus Christ. Father, that when you tell us that we are to walk as Jesus walked, uh, we don't have to figure that out on our own. It's recorded for us by eyewitnesses who walked alongside of Jesus, who, who studied him, who, uh, Father, learned from him all of his ways. And we can look to your word and we can know what that means because your word is trustworthy and true. And we read there, Father, that you so loved the world. That's why you sent Jesus, because you so loved the world that you didn't want anyone to perish, but you wanted us to have everlasting life. And that now if we do, if we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and we, we believe in our hearts that you raised him from the dead, Father, you've offered us a brand new life. You've offered us hope. You've offered us, Father, salvation. And so for my brothers and sisters here today, Lord, I pray that maybe our, our hearts have been strengthened, our faith has been renewed as we look at the evidence, Lord. It is so absolutely overwhelming. You've called us to have faith, but Father, in some of this, it's just a matter of searching it out and seeing that it's true. We want to come to you with faith. We also want to come to you knowing your word, being ready to give those reasons for the hope that is in us. And for those who are maybe here this morning, Lord, and recognizing that, hey, there, there's more to this, uh, than what the world tells me. There's, there's more to this, Jesus. I just pray, Father, that a, a fire has been lit, that they will continue to search, that your spirit would draw their hearts and that they would find you to be true. Lord, if there are those here today who are surrendering their hearts to you, uh, first of all, I just say welcome to the family. Welcome to hope. Welcome to love. Welcome to a new way of life. And thank you, Jesus, for offering that to us. Lord, it's in the precious name of Jesus that we pray this morning. Amen.